Well, thanks very much, Amy, for the, uh, for, for the kind introduction. And once again, I'm really, and now absolutely on my, my own behalf, I'm uh, delighted to be here. I feel as if, I feel doubly at home, I think, is how I would, would, would put it, at, at home, because this is the, the Society for First World War Studies, and, and I was there at that historic first, first conference. Um, is it, can it really be 15 years ago? Um, and, and I too would, would really like to pay tribute to Jenny McLeod and um, Pierre Piosegle, who were the, were the founders and uh, begetters of uh, this extraordinary enterprise and have continued to drive it, I think, with the uh, inclusive spirit that it's shown ever since. But I've also really come to value and, and enjoy my involvement in the Oxford Globalising and Localising the Great War project with, with Hugh Strawn, with Adrian Gregory, uh, with Jeanette Atkinson, our absolutely wonderful administrator, and with all the team, and in particular those who've organised this conference with, with, with Louis, with Ashley, with Hannah, with, with, with Jack. Um, it's it's, it's uh, the, the ongoing involvement um, with the Oxford group is, uh, has become almost a kind of second home, and it just seems to me so wonderfully appropriate that um, the Oxford project should be hosting the Society of First World War Studies on this particular occasion. And for this particular subject, which is um, wartime. And what I want to talk about in the next 40 minutes or so, leaving, I hope, some uh, 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 plenty of time for discussion, is the, the time frames of the Great War. Time is, is a medium in which we all work as historians. But I often think that we, we tend to work in it without reflecting perhaps very much on the nature of time, beyond how it orders the, the analyses that we make uh, and the narratives that we create. So we're all of us constantly, sequentially, or, or using time to organise those narratives, those analyses. And we, uh, uh, of course, address questions of periodization, starts and ends, uh, of the kind that we've already raised um, this morning. But our own lives tell us that the rhythms of time are as multiple, fast, slow, standing still, as they are full of meaning, spare time, sacred time, the time of one's life. And once we start to look at time, not just as a medium, but also as a subject in itself, then I think a very rich world opens up to us. And of course, this isn't an original observation, and historians in different ways have taken time as an as an object of study in the past. But I think it's a particularly rich world when we apply it to war, to wartime, and uh, to the uh, First World War. If we now aspire to write global and, and indeed local histories of the Great War, then I think we have to consider in and of themselves the temporal aspects, the time frame aspects of that ambition to write uh, transnational, uh, even global histories. We could indeed argue that the First World War was the first global event, and not just because it touched a great deal of the world, but because most humans during the First World War experienced that war in real time. 
There may be some people who were totally unaware that it was going on, but most of humanity during the First World War in real time, thanks to the telegraph, to the wireless, wireless communications, radio communications, and the press, were aware of the war in their own locality. In that sense, I would argue, I would claim, that it's the first historical event lived in real time by most of the world. But how people did that, how they experienced it in real time, of course turned on where they were and how they related to the war. And if we add that time isn't only subjective, which it clearly is, but includes memory of the past and anticipation of the future, then it becomes even clearer that time is a very complex thing. It has its own sequence of tenses and also that it has agency, that time itself may become a shaping factor in history and how it turns out. Well, all of these issues are part of what I mean by the, the, the term I coin in my title, if you like, timeframes of the war. And by timeframes of the war, I mean the temporal settings in which the war was imagined, lived, remembered, analysed and commemorated over the century since it broke out. And I use the term to embrace the notion of temporal horizons formulated by the German historian Reinhard Koselleck. That's to say the idea that all of us as humans live with a grammar, a grammar of the past, the present and the future. And that one of our functions as historians is to reconstruct those grammars of experience in the past. But I also use it to include François Hartog's term, the regimes of historicity. And what Hartog means by that in his book from about a decade ago, but I think translated into English about four years ago, these are the constructions of history that characterise specific societies. In other words, how people in the past understood their own history and how they used it. And for me, that, as well as the, the, the grammar of the temporal grammar of the tenses, is uh, what I mean by the time frames of history. Time frames draws on both of these ideas and asks how humans understand time, and in this case, how they understood wartime as part of their experience. Now, since time frames themselves have their own temporality, what I shall do in this talk is to look at how the Great War, how the temporalities, the time frames of the Great War, played out over three periods. The war itself, the interwar years, and uh, now. Well, firstly, the time frames during the war. In Europe, the Great War was experienced in at least two time frames. At least. There were, I think, many. But there are two that I would like to highlight. The first was an historic time frame. It was the time frame of contemporary historicity, if you like. And it went back in the French and the German cases to 1870. And for Europeans more generally, it went back to 1789-1815, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. This was understood by contemporaries as being the prior turning point in European history. And indeed, the centenaries of the battles in which it climaxed accompanied the onset of the Great War, with Borodino being celebrated in 1912, uh, the Battle of the Nations at Leipzig in 1913, and already plans being made to celebrate the centenary of Waterloo in 1915. 
until other events got in the way. Now, the version of this history into which the war was fitted by, varied by nation or empire. Naturally, it differed for Germany, poised to become a world power, and Austria-Hungary fighting for imperial survival. But from the outset, the war appeared to be a struggle for existence between empires and perhaps above all nation states, part of that mobilization, that engagement, that political engagement that Hugh Strawn was talking about earlier. And this was so in relation to nation states, both where such states existed and also where, as in Ireland and much of Eastern Europe, they had yet to come about. Invasion and counter-invasion in 1914-15, in the East and the West of the continent, made, I think, this sense of existential crisis tangible. Instant histories of the war proliferated. You can find them in illustrated volumes, often produced by newspapers, in pamphlets, in children's comics. The war, I want to suggest, at the outset in most European societies, was lived, was referred to as instant history. People knew that they were living in historic times, and that this was the first time really for a century that on this scale that had been so. Not surprisingly, history was ransacked to give meaning to the conflict. For the French, the revolution was a dramatic script, more than just a memory, I think, an active dramatic script, which was used to interpret roles, to project scenarios, and understand underlying processes thrown up by the war. Most obviously, the Levee en masse of 1793, which we've already heard about this morning, that's to say the first attempt at universal conscription based on the idea of the citizen soldier, the Levee en masse was naturally a source of inspiration. It's omnipresent instantly, instantly. Even Le Temps, a centre-right newspaper, in, on the 4th of August, 5th of August 1914, says, um, if the Germans think this will be an e easy walkover, we are revolutionary France. We had the levee en masse, and that is what is now standing against Germany. But so too was the scientific side of the French Revolution uh, and its war effort pressed into service uh, in the 1790s when it came to organizing in 1915-16 that industrial mobilization for the Great War. Again, one could uh, activate the memory of Lavoisier and the notion of the, um, uh, uh, of the, the Forgeur de Pique and the, and the creation of scientific laboratories in Paris in the 1790s as an example. In the case of militant nationalism, the present embraced the past in the form of new martyrs, creating powerful timeframes in the war <clears throat> for the future. The leaders of the Easter Rising in Dublin in April 1916 inscribed their act in a long historical chain, quote, in every generation, the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty. Six times during the last 300 years, they have asserted it in arms, end of quote. And of course, this example helped convert nationalist opinion, which had been broadly in support of the war in Ireland, into a new struggle for Irish independence, a future time frame constructed through martyrology. The Italian irredentist patriot from the Austrian Trentino, Cesare Battisti, who was executed just three months after the Irish rebels in 1916, he rejected, he was from the Austrian side of the border, had defected, fought with the Italian army, had been captured, 
and was then executed by the Austro-Hungarian authorities. And just before he was executed, he claimed that he, had, he, he rejected Habsburg rule, quote, in the name of the final war of the Italian Risorgimento. Yet, because invasions opened the war, the war opened with invasions, contemporaries also cast back to more distant periods in their search for analogies to explain the violence. People had largely become used to the idea in 1914 of international norms for the conduct of war, as agreed by the, the Hague Conferences of 1899 and 1907, and they were shocked when these were breached. Again, Hugh referred earlier to this palpable shock of the violence of the war, and part of that was the, the violence against civilians during the different invasions. And so people drew on earlier examples of atrocity, such as the religious hatreds of the Thirty Years' War, that seemed to parallel the violence of 1914, or indeed, they went back to the fall of the Roman Empire and the barbarian invasions. The British Prime Minister Herbert Asquith wrote in late August 1914, after he'd been down to Dover and interviewed returning wounded British soldiers, quote, the burning of Louvain by the Germans is the worst thing they have yet done. It reminds one of the Thirty Years' War. And he was thinking of, and says he was thinking of, Tilly's burning down of Magdeburg. And of course, uh, the Kaiser was routinely compared to Attila the Hun. However, the more the war bogged down in the stalemate of the fronts, the, the harder it became to find historical significance in it. And this, I think, provides the second time frame of the war that I want to mention, which was that of personal time. It's particularly notable in soldiers' diaries. These often start with the sense of um, uh, uh, instant history, of epic history that I've mentioned, but fade into the struggle for personal survival. It's as if soldiers and their families were swallowed up in an all-invasive present. It absorbed the past of ordinary life and only occasionally hinted at, at future events, a battle or a peace move that might realign personal with historical time by ending the war. So in late December 1914, Henri Desperrières told his parents uh, from the Marne that after recent attacks, he and his fellow soldiers in Infantry Regiment 14 had resumed, quote, our slow, our patient war of attrition already, notre guerre d'usure. This is in October, December rather, 1914. Skeptical about a rumoured Russian victory, he nonetheless still expressed the hope in his New Year greetings that the denouement of the great conflict would not take too long to come about. And I'd come back to and would emphasize, I think, the sorts of things you were saying this morning. For me, there's an extraordinarily complex cognitive um, uh, uh, complexity about how people saw, didn't see, what they told themselves, what they didn't tell themselves, about whether this was a short war or a long war or the reasons why it might be both. And there, in the case of Henri Desperriers, you get absolutely the two. This is a war that could just go on, flat horizon, temporarily speaking, forever. And yet there's the hope that actually the, the uh, Russian offensive in Galicia will bring the whole wretched thing to an end. But his watchword in his letters to his parents were patience. And of course, patience is an emotion lived in the present tense. Reconciling hope with experience and historical with personal time defined the horizon of expectations of soldiers and civilians alike. Now, of course, that realignment did eventually happen. Historical time resumed its hold on individual destinies and with brutal rapidity as Russia dissolved into revolution, ending the Eastern Front in 1917. 
Germany sued for an armistice a year later, defeated but not demonstrably beaten in the field. And the result was disbelief by many Germans who as recently as the spring of 1918 had thought that, that peace and by victory was in the immediate future, that victory was still possible um, with the signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk um, as late as the spring of 1918. And as we've heard, surprise on the part of the Allied troops who expected to win the war in 1919-1920 and suddenly the whole thing almost by a sleight of hand has been called to a halt. The war was thus experienced in at least two time frames, historic time and personal time, but many other time frames lay at an angle, sometimes an oblique angle, to both historical and personal time. I think prime amongst these is something that I would be tempted to call existential time, and in this period it meant largely, though not exclusively, religion. Now of course, religious reference to the war as a new crusade reinforced national or imperial time frames, giving added meaning, if you like, to historic time. But religion at root was a more primal ordering of individuals and societies in relation to life and eternity. And is this not the crusade, I think, that helps explain why the war saw a resurgence of religiosity, perhaps rather more than of formal religion? When death occurred on a scale unprecedented in living memory, this was, it seems to me, inevitable. In an uncertain present, religion provided temporal markers which were premised on the world to come. There was also a resurgence of the idea of war as a scourge, a punishment for sins committed, individual or collective. This was the war as end time, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which, not accidentally, I think, was the title of Vicento Vicente Blasco Ibanez's 1960 novel, 1916 novel in Spain, which was the most powerful fictional work on the futility of the war to emerge from a neutral country. But French prefects commented in 1915 that such a view of the war just as an, as an impersonal divine scourge, that this was something which was widespread in the more remote and fervent rural areas and was often linked to lingering hostility of the separation of church and state by the Republic in 1905. And the same was true of rural society elsewhere, and indeed not just in Europe. One thinks of the Virgin's third revelation at Fatima in northern Portugal in 1917, that the end of the war was at hand, and so the return of the troops was imminent. And one also thinks of the Chiliastic revivalism of John Chilembwe's ill-fated revolt against the war in Nyasaland in 1915. Even more fundamentally, the endless present in which the war threatened to subsume contemporaries with its, with its low but distant future horizons of home leave or even peace was overridden at the moments of greatest danger by possible death and whatever lay beyond. <clears throat> this was a subject that was evoked in letters, delicately, between husband and wife, was addressed in church services before Action. There's a famous um, Irish painting of the Royal Munster Fusiliers receiving extreme unction as a battalion um, uh, before the Battle of, I think it's Neuve Chapelle in 1915. And, uh, uh, and, and, and of course, it was something which was present at funerals, which were many, manifold, behind the lines. This was the ultimate personal time frame, it seems to me, 
religious or secular. As an Irish Catholic chaplain on the Western Front put it, writing in Gaelic, quote, over no man's land seems to hang the veil that divides time from eternity, like waves beating one after the other against the rock-bound coast of Donegal, wave after wave of human beings rush against the stubborn foe. Many who go, who go over fall by the hand of death, whose gaunt figure seems to stand there awaiting its victims. Many are drawn over and find themselves in eternity. Others come back. What a sensation it must be that one has just been standing on the brink of that huge abyss, the boundless, illimitable eternity. Now, having mapped out these time frames which I would argue obtained during the war, and of course I'm very conscious that there were others, let me come now to my sort of second theme, which is my second temporality of time frames, which is time frames between the wars. It ought to come as no surprise that national historical time dominated peacemaking after the war. This, after all, was the moment when nation-states became the dominant organisational form and source of political legitimacy in Europe. Even Britain and France commemorated victory principally as nation-states, although their empires also reached their zenith, of course, as they stripped Germany of its colonies and divided up the Ottoman Middle East. And I wouldn't want to deny for a minute the, the imperial um, penumbra and, and uh, uh, aureole, as it were, which, which, which surrounds that, that, that um, uh, wartime commemoration. But it does seem to me that the core of it um, is um, an emergent sense of national specificity in the British and the French cases. Historians and geographers, the professionals of time and space, played an important role at the peace conference, advising the Allies on the world they were making under the banner, or remaking rather, under the banner of democracy and national self-determination. Measured by the time frames that had presided over its outbreak four years earlier, the war appeared to many as a fundamental breakpoint. But the nature of that breakpoint varied both with the prior sense of linear historical time and also with how society stood in relation to the war's outcome, to its end game. The period 1918 to 1939 diversified and polarised the sense of instant history, not only because the First World War unleashed far more than it could resolve, but also because the world it resulted in was more violent and divided than the one preceding it. So the historical significance of the war became a key for contemporaries as they juggled with and tried to contain and explain the, this unstable reality. And the particular meaning that they gave it, however, of course, depended, amongst other factors, on victory or defeat. Precisely because there was nothing definitive about the victory in 1918, it seems to me that the Allies made a fetish <coughs> of the moment of supposed victory on the 11th of November, the 11th hour, the 11th day. This and its rituals, the minute silence, the tomb of the unknown soldier, marked the end of the war and the beginning of the new world it had ushered in. Yet of course the war had finished earlier elsewhere and didn't end officially until various dates in 1919 to 1920, when the peace treaties came into force. And those treaties of course proved deeply divisive while leaving in place regimes with the power to contest them. So, in this sense, the Allied hold on victory was fragile from the start. The insistence that the armistice had ended the war, that this had been a war fought to defend civilization, underlined this fragility. One might, I think, talk of an Allied culture of victory, 
which existed in several variants according to the country concerned. But one of its functions was to frame and contain the temporal instability of the past, to shut the door on the war to say it had meant this and not that, that it was firmly in the past, but it wasn't firmly in the past. And I think the instability of that culture of victory helps explain and express that. Slowly, a feeling grew that the war had been a terrible tragedy, and this reinforced the sense both that the peace settlement must stand, but also that a future war could undermine and negate it, as eventually proved to be the case. Conversely, German public opinion rejected the idea that Germany had been totally defeated, or that it was responsible for the war, or for war crimes committed during its prosecution, as the Allies claimed. This, along with the German exclusion from the Paris Peace Conference, fed the repudiation of the peace treaty in Weimar Germany, behind which loomed a traumatic reaction to the, to the unexpected downfall of the nation. Wolfgang Schivelbusch has discussed this as a culture of defeat. Its essential time frame was rooted in the past, in who was responsible for the war's outbreak. Each state justified its behaviour in the July crisis with documents and semi-official histories produced in the 1920s. Socialists and pacifists weighed in, allocating responsibility to both camps. And the result was an overdetermined diplomatic prehistory of the war that placed the entire retrospective burden for the conflict and all it had turned out to mean on the shoulders of those who were variously deemed responsible for its outbreak. Elsewhere, the war was seen as a breakpoint in different but no less profound ways. Where multinational empires had collapsed in Eastern Europe, Turkey and Ireland, the violence that continued down to 1923 marked national independence. This might assume a victorious mode, for example, Romania, Czechoslovakia and indeed eventually Turkey with the Treaty of Lausanne, or it might assume a defeated mode, as in Hungary, with angry claims for lost territory symbolised by monuments to the catastrophe of the Treaty of Trianon. But either way, the war was pivotal to national history. Outside Europe, as Erez Manela has shown, colonial nationalists from China and Korea to India and Egypt tries, tried to seize the same historical moment of the Paris Peace <coughs> Conference to demand the extension of Wilsonian sovereignty to the British and French empires. They failed. But at least in the perspective of more recent post-colonial perceptions, this marks the moment when future decolonization accelerated. The Soviet Union, by contrast, denied the war any such historic role. Determined by Lenin and Trotsky's understanding of the materialist dialectic, the November Revolution, not the Great War, was the moment for them when history's wheel turned. For all their diversity, the senses of history crystallised by the Great War converged on the idea that its real importance had been military, political and diplomatic. Historians largely ignored the personal experience of the war. But the soldiers who survived it could not do so. And as one might imagine, and as we know, they poured out memoir literature, now written with the closure of hindsight in the past tense and often in the mode of victimhood. It was here that the violence of the conflict was addressed. Hence, at least two memory frameworks were pursued down to the Second World War. National histories dealt with the responsibility for the war's outbreak and, to a lesser degree, with how it had been won or lost. This was the, clas this was the classic narrative time frame 
of the great and powerful, with numerous memoirs by generals and politicians sustaining it, and it was also that pursued by professional history writing. It was fundamental because it provided the moral foundation of the post-war world, or contested that. But in parallel, a different sense of meaning and memory emerged in the retrospective timeframes of ordinary participants, usually soldiers, but sometimes also women. These took other narrative forms, notably fiction or memoirs from below. One function was to redeem the feeling during the war of being swallowed up by the present. The sense of history in the soldiers' memoirs usually expressed a lack of power or personal agency, in sharp contradistinction to that of the generals and the politicians, uh, uh, in, in relation to history with a capital H. The prevailing tone was often, not always certainly, but often one of irony, even tragedy. These, of course, were the works analysed by the French critic and veteran Jean Norton Cru in his controversial work of 1929, Témoins, or Witnesses. They formed the British literature of disenchantment, Blunden, Graves, Sassoon, Owen, in the 1930 edition of his poems. And Owen, of course, took as his subject the pity of war. But the sense of the war as a tragedy, albeit a necessary tragedy, and of the gulf between the future one and the price paid for it, also found expression elsewhere, in some veterans' movements, especially in the victor countries. And this is not to deny that different revanchist messages emerged from other veteran memoirs, especially, but not only, in Germany. If all veterans were haunted by those who had not survived, civilians might also agonise over how a national historical time frame that saw the war in terms of victory or defeat, a cause won or lost, might be squared with private grief and loss. If the war seemed like an endless present at the time, the amputation of the future that came with the death of a loved one could turn it into a past that was hard or indeed impossible to escape. Thus Lady Violet Cecil, whose son George died aged 18 fighting in September 1914, inserted an in memoriam notice in the Times 20 years later in 1934. I shall remember while the, light, while the light lasts, and in the darkness I shall not forget. Katie Kolowitz, the German artist and sculptress, only found comfort and was restored to present time when she came to understand that the bereaved had lost as much as the dead. Famously, she changed the project for a statue of her son Peter, killed in October 1914, into one of herself and her husband as grieving parents but it took her nearly 20 years to do this. Most trapped of all by a past that remained all too present were the veterans, uh, or rather were the veterans who suffered post-traumatic stress syndrome, who might be ambushed by the war at any moment, or in the worst cases, were condemned to relive it endlessly without reprieve. Let me turn now to the timeframes uh, post 1945 and particularly of the present. With the end of the Second World War and the onset of the Cold War, the First World War assumed a very different place in the time frames, the historical time frames, of the countries concerned. It no longer dominated present time as it had done before 1939. Indeed, a distinct new register of contemporary history, as it was called, emerged in Europe at least which denoted a time frame that began with 1945. In this perspective, 1914-18 was at best a prehistory. 
The 50th anniversaries, 1964 to 68, partially restored the Great War to view, especially in Britain, where of course the BBC produced its celebrated TV documentary series, and also in France. In both countries, historians at last began to write about the soldiers, while the veterans, who were now over 70, expressed their retrospective time frame collectively for the last time. I'm thinking of something like the, the museum, the Memorial de Verdun, created by the veterans, which opens in 1967. I take that to be the, the last museographical expression by the veterans themselves of the Great War. Differences in national memory frameworks now starkly dis distinguished the very visibility of the war. The determining factor was the impact of the Second World War and Cold War on the societies concerned. The Great War was most prominent in the victorious Western Front states, especially France, Britain and the former British dominions. Because the Second World War in Europe was mainly an Eastern Front struggle, British and French casualties remained higher in the First World War. In time, this was the conflict that came to stand in Britain for Owen's pity of war, whereas the Second World War acquired different connotations. In Britain, it was a good war, a national epic. In France, a divisive trauma, the decisive episode of the 20th century. But the Great War, of course, still looms large in both countries as a counterpoint to these different meanings of its successor, and perhaps ultimately as a measure of military sacrifice in war. The lingering shadow of the culture of defeat helps explain the opposite case of Germany. While there has been a good deal of academic work on the war, this has not been matched by public interest, and I think that's even true now after a slight change of position in 2014, which has remained focused, unsurprisingly, on the greater catastrophe of the Second World War. And this isn't surprising. Nazi foreign policy after 1933 was the answer to the German obsession with the Great War. Its end point in 1945 and the more than five million German military dead of the Second World War simply turned the Great War into the herald or the antechamber of that later catastrophe. The runaway success of Christopher Clarke's The Sleepwalkers 2013 in its German edition suggests that the Great War is now uh, to some degree unhooked from its previous subordination, almost burial by the Second World War. But I think uh, the First World War cannot and won't supplant in popular German memory or national history, the role of the Second World War. Different but comparable time frames determine the visibility of the First World War in other uh, countries. The Treaty of Trianon remains a nationalist site of memory in Hungary because it marked the downfall of Greater Hungary and the loss of territory to Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia and above all Romania, something that was confirmed by the Second World War and so forms part of Hungarian life today. Poland, by contrast, epitomizes the difficulty of remembering a war and its time frame that preceded the nation-state within a national memory framework. Three and a half million Poles fought in the First World War for the three empires that had partitioned their country in the late 18th century, Germany, Austria and Russia, up to 400,000 of them dying. But the new Polish, and moreover, the new Polish Republic that emerged from the war was the custodian of the former Eastern Front, its monuments and cemeteries. Yet the wars that mattered for newly independent Poland were those with its neighbours, Ukraine, Lithuania and the Soviet Union in 1919 to 1920. These provided the founding narrative of the new state. And to this day, Polish in interest in the Great War is marginal. 
Now, these national time frames of memory and historical understanding remain strong, and I think they've shaped the commemorations during the centenary. However, among historians, the period since the 75th anniversary in 1989 has unleashed very different European and global time frames for understanding the war. There's a certain irony in this, for that anniversary, 1989, passed almost without notice um, uh, in regard to the First World War, as the Berlin War came down and the bicentenary of the French Revolution was commemorated. But I want, by way of conclusion, to suggest that the late 1980s marked a turning point in historical understanding of the war, in which three time frames, uh, which affect us now, emerged particularly clearly. The first of these time frames was the short 20th century, and it's the most obvious. The fall of the Soviet Union and German reunification ended a cycle of events that began in 1914. 1945, rather than starting contemporary history as it was seen during the Cold War, now became a way station in the middle of a short century that had its own closure in 1989. Subsequent events refocused attention on the earlier part of the century, and so the Great War became the seminal catastrophe, how it was referred to, the matrix of the 20th century. It's not just that the wars in the former Yugoslavia, where Sarajevo endured a brutal siege, of course, from 1992 to 1996, harked back to the Bosnian crisis of 1908 to 1914. More generally, the violence of the Second World War and indeed of the Holocaust invited a search for what I would call genealogies of violence that reached back to 1914. That's the first time frame emerging from 1989, which I think is still very much with us. The second time frame entails a spatial shift. Now, much of what I've said has been Eurocentric. And this is partly because the world still centered on Europe in 1914. While the war itself began to change that reality, it took the Second World War and decolonization to do so fully. It's also, I think, um, uh, 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 the persistence of that Western framework because historians and indeed the public, partly because of national memory frameworks, often adopt uncritically the temporal and the spatial hierarchies of those that they study or pay attention to. So this means that in the West, even today, the war remains visible largely as an episode in Western history, although I do believe that the upsurge in Middle Eastern histories of the war is beginning to change that. Yet, while East Asia, India, Africa, the Middle East, or indeed South America may or may not have been peripheral to the outcome of the Great War, the war was often far from peripheral to those regions and their peoples. And I want to really underline that point because it seems to me that this, what I call this reverse logic, so we might argue that the British Empire was more important to the war than the Ottoman Empire was, Western Front much more powerful, etc. The reverse proposition is absolutely false. The First World War was not more important to the British Empire than it was to the Ottoman Empire. Led to break up of the Ottoman Empire, genocide, the emergence of modern Turkey and so on. Operate that reverse logic around the world. And I think one begins to free up, as it were, this kind of single or positivist framework, whether temporal or spatial, for understanding the war. The genocide of a million Armenians is now, I think, central to our understanding of the conflict. Although it took place in Asia Minor and at the time during the war seemed far less important in London, Paris or Berlin than the barely comparable violence towards Belgian civilians or indeed the Allied naval blockade. It's only as decolonization has reshaped British and French understandings of history 
and as China and India have emerged as major powers, that we've begun to appreciate these different non-European timeframes. As I mentioned at the outset, moving spatially towards a global history of the war has implications for the timeframes through which we view it. The chronology of the war was in some regards the same everywhere. In that sense, the war unified time. I started out by saying that it was the first um, uh, uh, event of the 20th century experienced in real time by most of the planet. But of course the effects it produced and how these were perceived depended on very distinct patterns of development. So colonial soldiers or workers who went to Europe and their families at home tried to fit the war into the notions of space and time with which they were familiar, while also grappling, as did all the participants, with the radical novelty of the conflict. A Pathan soldier with the Indian Corps wrote from the Western Front, quote, no one who has ever seen the war will forget it to, the la to their last day. Just like a turnip is cut into pieces, so a man is blown to bits by the explosion of a shell. In taking a hundred yards of trench, it's like the destruction of the world, end of quote. So an experience which he shared with non-Indians alongside him, but which he expressed in his own temporal and spatial concerns. Algerians were long used to their caids or their chiefs levying a certain number of men for military service. But the scale of conscription and the nature of the violence in 1914-1918 disrupted traditional understandings of this process and it produced a revolt in November 1916 in the back country of Algeria. And as Jonathan Krauss has been uh, showing us, this also happened elsewhere in the colonial world, including in Russian Central Asia. Rather, as the universal time that was introduced just before the Great War required 24 separate time zones as the condition of uniformity, we perhaps need to use multiple subjective historical time frames, both to reconstruct global episodes in the past and also to understand how they have subsequently been understood around the planet. Militarily, Japan barely took part in the Great War, despite being a combatant state. Yet economically, politically, and perhaps above all culturally, the war transformed Japanese views of the world in a trajectory of violence that for Japan runs not from 1914, but rather from 1904, the war against Russia, to 1945. Ernst Bloch's idea of non-simultaneous simultaneity may help us grasp, I think, the subjective time frames at work. Bloch, the 1920s philosopher, uh, hypothesizing that, that um, uh, simultaneously there are highly differentiated time frames which are in play, and so that people who experience the same thing at the same time may be doing it in temporarily very different terms, and so therefore that, that non-simultaneous simultaneity is a way of grasping that. Very briefly, my final time frame is different. <coughs> And it returns us to the soldiers' experiences of the Great War and to the personal memories and mourning of the conflict in the interwar period. The living trace of the war has gone with the deaths of the last veterans. Yet over the past two decades, it's been the soldiers' story and to a lesser extent that of women and civilians, often linked to the surge of interest in local and family history that has driven both popular interest in the Great War, where this exists, and the concerns of professional historians. This, I think, is especially clear in how historians have opened up the experiences and memories of mass participation in the war to serious study. It's as if the personal time frames that for so long coexisted in an uneasy relationship with national, political, and military histories are now bidding to provide the main temporality through which historians and the public alike 
are coming to view the war. And it is one that, in spatial terms, is potentially global and also local. And that, perhaps, is the most exciting future for the history of the war. A global history, or rather multiple global histories, that try to place ordinary people at the centre of their own timeframes. Thank you very much.